0: It was May 19, 1851, that's 168 years ago this morning when an Episcopal priest from New York City named William Richmond sat down to write a letter home in what was aspirationally termed his boarding house here on the muddy streets of the newly founded town of Portland, Oregon. He wrote, I occupy a room in a shanty quite open to the air, with a rough, unplaned and ungrooved floor, no carpets, no plastering, and no ceiling. For this, he wrote, I pay $12 a month, $3 having been deducted by the landlord on account of my mission. I do all my own cooking, and I gather my own wood out of the forest behind me, and yet my expenses will be as great as at a good boarding house in New York City. He was not used to roughing it. Mr. Richmond? I guess his, uh, his sherry was hard to come by on the frontier. But just a day earlier, which had been a Sunday morning, May 18th, uh, Mr. Richmond had gathered a small group of worshipers in a Methodist meeting house, which then stood on the corner of Southwest, Second, and Taylor downtown. That was the first organized gathering of Episcopalians west of the Rocky Mountains and north of San Francisco. The first service is held, according to the American Prayer Book, in the Pacific Northwest. And following that service, they elected a vestry, and they gave their congregation, their new congregation, a name. It was Trinity Church in the city of Portland. Richmond wrote, the responses, the chanting, the whole service was conducted in a most orderly and gratifying manner. (laughs) If you haven't figured it out yet, we Episcopalians are the ones who are gratified by what? Orderliness. (laughs) It's our favorite thing. So, happy 168th birthday, Trinity. You've come a long way from that orderly and gratifying gathering of 25 frontiersmen in a little clapboard meeting house on 2nd and Taylor, and there have been times in our more recent history when orderly and gratifying probably would not have been the adjective used to describe this community. In the early 1970s, there were more than a few eyebrows that were raised when rock masses started happening in this cathedral. There There was some fear, there was some trepidation in those days, a sense that, that society was imploding and that the orderly and gratifying prayers of a previous era were one of the last bulwarks of decency against the rising tides of feminism and black power and sexual liberation and identity politics. Well, gradually, that tone began to shift. Trinity was at the forefront of ministry to people with AIDS in the 1980s and 90s, in the days when there were some healthcare professionals in Portland who would not dare touch an HIV patient. We came late to the party with women's ordination, but Trinity stood at the forefront of the movement for gay and lesbian equality in the church, and in the early 2000s, when this community began to identify its core values, inclusion stood near the head of that list, and that's because a lot of work had been done by many of you who are sitting in this room this morning, the hard work that you did to begin to shift this congregation to a place where we would claim inclusion as one of the things that made us distinctive. And this is a congregation that continues to, to break boundaries in the name of inclusion, in violation of the official teaching of the Episcopal Church. Every Sunday, you hear us say that this Eucharistic meal of bread and wine we offer at this altar is open to absolutely anybody, regardless of whether or not you've been baptized. That's not, we say that, not because we have bought in to some contemporary liberal claptrap about how everybody deserves a cookie, right? We don't say that because we're working out our guilt over centuries of exclusion and rejection practiced by the church in the name of Jesus Christ. And we don't say it because we live in an era in which religious attendance has fallen so far off that we're trying desperately to get more butts in seats. We say that because we take very seriously. You might even say, we take literally. This story from the book of Acts about Peter and Cornelius and this big argument in the first century church about who is invited to the table. What God has called clean, Peter tells his friends, what God has called clean, you must not, you dare not call profane. That's another way of saying that a table stops being sacred if there's somebody barred from sitting at it. Why did you eat with uncircumcised men? That's the question that Peter's associates uh, ask him when he returns from this missionary trip to the seacoast of Judea. That's Gentile territory, right? He has scandalously baptized a Roman soldier, a member of the, the Roman military establishment named Cornelius, along with his household. And, and interestingly, the baptism that Peter performs, initiating a non-Jew into the traditions of a pretty tightly knit community, that baptism does not actually seem to be the primary issue in the argument. The problem is is that Peter then proceeded to eat with this family. Inclusion is fine, as long as it doesn't challenge my core practices, right? So Peter shares their food. And according to some of the people in his group, that would have compromised his, his status, right? For some very strict believers in the first century, the issue of mealship, meal fellowship was the issue that determined who was in and who was out. The boundaries of Jewish identity and practice were shifting very rapidly in this period, there were probably more Jewish believers outside the homeland than there were within it. Jewish communities were springing up all over the Roman world, often mixed communities with ethnic Judeans mixing and marrying people of different ethnicities and different beliefs. So it was not like Christians were the ones who invented the idea of inclusion. right? Jews have been wrestling with this question for a long time before we ever arrived at the table. And, but it was in that context, in this complicated and vexed question, about what it means to truly belong, what it means to follow the law, what makes somebody truly righteous before God. It's in the context of that age-old question that the Jesus movement first begins to find its voice. Initially, it's a a kind of apocalyptic renewal movement within Judaism that's calling its members both to greater strictness with regards to lifestyle and at the same time to this, this radical inclusion of people whose practices and ethnicities and gender identities were seen as a real threat to the orderly and gratifying religious community that was inviting them in. The stories that the book of Acts tells about these early days in the movement are telling ones, I think. In one story, the disciple Philip baptizes an Ethiopian eunuch, right? This guy is a sexual and ethnic outsider. He works for a foreign government. In the story we heard today, Peter baptizes the whole household of a Roman soldier and then he eats their food, right? People whose race and ethnicity and gender expression and sexual orientation would previously have kept them away from the table are being invited into this new community with some very interesting shifting boundaries. A really radical change is taking place. And presumably, the guy who wrote all this stuff down, right? The writer of the book of Acts, tradition says it's the same guy that wrote the gospel according to Luke, Presumably, he is telling these stories in this way for a particular reason. Luke is writing several generations after the story he's telling took place, so we assume that the issues with which the people in the stories are struggling are the same issues that his community is wrestling with decades later. Questions like, who can be baptized? right? With whom are you allowed to share a meal? Does it matter whether or not somebody's been circumcised? Can eunuchs and widows and unmarried people and women and slaves be fully enfranchised members of the community? And if we fully enfranchise them, what does that mean? Can they vote in the community? Can they lead a community, as both Lydia and Priscilla seem to do in the book of Acts, right, contravening everything that the Roman world told them about a woman's appropriate place in, in the world? Presumably, these are the very questions that Luke's community is wrestling with. So Luke tells these older stories, he returns to his history, and like Peter telling the story of his vision, Luke lays out his account step-by-step. Step. Right? He's telling a story of inclusion in the same way that Peter is telling a step-by-step story about his journey among the Gentiles. That's what the whole book of Acts is. It's a step-by-step retelling for a fractious, divided community about how their founders created a religious movement that found a sense of common identity in the act of welcoming outsiders and strangers. Acts is is almost like a study guide for how to practice equity and justice in a divided community because this, this spirit of openness, this commitment to collapsing human distinctions in favor of God's profligate grace, this way of being together that deliberately undermines group cohesion in favor of I mean, what from the outside looks like a sloppy cafeteria-style religion where you can believe and do anything you want to, right? That particular way of being religious, Peter and Luke suggest, does not happen overnight. It happens step by step. It happens one arduous step at a time. Human beings do not do this naturally, right? We're not, we're not wired to be inclusive people. We're wired to create tribes and clans and sects and in-groups. Because thousands of years ago, that's the evolutionary impulse that kept us safe. And an anthropologist might say, actually, <laughs> that's what religion is for, right? A re- a religion, as a human phenomenon, is something that keeps society organized. It makes sure that the social world is orderly and gratifying, and not just for Episcopalians. Religious works, religion works really well as a means of social control. The interesting thing is when particular religions start to undermine their own human project in the name of something that they interpret as a mandate from God. Peter has to take his listeners through his experience step by step. He doesn't expect them to just get it all in one go. He does expect them to get it. What God has made clean, he says, you must not call profane. And by the end of the story, his listeners have been reduced to silence. In that silence, something happens, something shifts. Just as the Spirit of God had descended upon Cornelius the Centurion and his family, now it descends upon a church business meeting, which is maybe one of the more unusual places to find the Spirit of God at work. But something shifts in that room, and another step down this arduous road is taken. The leaders say, who are we? that we can hinder what God is doing. If you really want to take the Bible literally, this is the kind of stuff you have to wrestle with. Stories about a God who takes delight in breaking down walls and smashing barriers and destroying our neat human categories and challenging my often very fixed notions of identity and decorum. A profligate spirit so unimaginably bored by orderly and gratifying prayers said in tightly-knit communities. But glorified, when I come up short, when I fall on my face and inelegantly and sloppily make a misguided attempt to draw the circle a little bit wider. Inclusion is messy business, especially when you're the privileged group that's trying to practice it, right? For all the ways that Episcopalians like to laud ourselves for being open-minded, especially in today's religious climate, Our history on this stuff is pretty dodgy, right? An honest, step-by-step recounting of Trinity's history carries just as many misses and stumbles and blind spots and gaffes as it does moments of grace. For 168 years, this little outpost of European values planted in the ancestral homelands of a bunch of disenfranchised nations, for 168 years, we've been moving slowly and often arduously, step-by-step, through the complicated question of who belongs at God's table. I mean, women and gay people were one thing. What about, like, non-white people? What about conservative people? What about people who don't come from generations of inherited wealth? What about people who don't speak English? People who live on the streets? People who show up to church drunk or high? People who don't sit quietly in the pews in the way that you're supposed to? How truly open and welcoming are we ready to be? And this is the hard part. What are we willing to give up in order to get there? Because open and welcoming, I think, is hard. It's a lot easier to be orderly and gratifying. And I'll admit I'm pretty committed to order. I am gratified by order. That's why I'm an Episcopalian. But orderly and gratifying may not cut it. What God has made clean, Peter says, you dare not call profane. That is a radical statement. I think the church is just beginning to scratch the surface of what it looks like to take that literally and then put it into practice. We're living in a society in which that witness to a radical inclusion is being pretty severely tested. But it's a vision of a community that I want to be a part of. When the Holy Spirit descends upon the Gentiles, something shifts in God's economy. Orderly and gratifying are not going to be the order of the day. We're called to something deeper, something harder, something better. A different kind of table is being prepared in our midst, and it looks a lot messier than Episcopalians are sometimes comfortable with. We, we like order. We like being gratified by it. But something else is at play here. And who are we? <laughs> who are we? that we should hinder what God is doing.